Hello, and welcome to the Draculina B-Movie Podcast. My name is Hugh Gallagher, the owner of Draculina Publishing, responsible for multiple magazines, comics, and books before the internet destroyed the publishing business. In this episode, I interview Tony Masiello, director of the movie Zombarella's House of Horrors, and the owner of SOVHorror.com, a company that focuses on taking shot-on-video movies from the glory days of the video boom and releasing them on DVD. Since I've done this interview, many new movies have been added to the site. A sampling of titles available include The Spirit Gallery, DiBQ, Death of Lantern, Mr. Ice Cream Man, Blood Orgy of the Leather Girls, and many more. If you have any interest at all on shot on video movies or just bizarre movies in general, I suggest you visit his site at sovhorror.com. As usual, the podcast usually coincides with whatever episode of Horrible Hughes Coffin Reviews just came out, and this is no different. In this episode, Horrible Hugh does a double feature, taking a look at the aforementioned Zombarella House of Horrors and David R. Williams' movie Metal Noir, both available from SOVHorror.com. I have a connection with the Metal Noir movie, which was an unreleased movie from the 90s that I ran camera on, edited, and even played a bit part in the movie. I got hooked up with David in the early days of the Draculina magazine. He had lost the lead for an actress for a movie he was doing called The Shuddering and asked me if I knew of anyone that might be good for the part. I pushed a girl named Hillary Lipton. Hillary did a bunch of nude promo photos for Donald Farmer for a movie she was going to star in of his called Cannibal Hookers. I may have been the only publication that displayed these photos in their bloody glory, and I was completely taken by this blonde beauty who looked like the girl next door who would never have anything to do with a movie called Cannibal Hookers, which for some reason I found appealing. But alas, in the end, she never was in the movie. Tim Ritter talks about Hillary in an interview I did with him in the Draculina podcast number five, so check it out. Now, David flew Hillary from Florida to Buffalo, New York for just a couple days of shooting. David reported back that she was a real prima donna on the set. That was pretty much the end of Hillary. I really don't know of anything that she actually starred in. Rumors were that she had married someone off of Miami Vice, but I have no way of knowing that for sure. As far as I know, the shuddering never saw the light of day. And I don't believe that Hillary did anything more than bit parts on Miami Vice. Having ran a making of article on the shuddering in Draculina, David and I kept in contact. He soon asked me if I would like to play the lead in a movie he was doing called The Eldridge. Unfortunately, he had problems getting all the people he needed, and we only shot a couple days in Buffalo, New York, with the intent of coming back later to shoot the rest when things got worked out, which never happened. But I took the footage that was shot, put it together, and wrote a new script and changed the story and had Gary Woodson from Wave Productions shoot the rest. The end result was Ashes the Slashes, which was really bad. The two styles did not mesh, and the whole thing sucked. Gary wanted paid for his work, so he ended up selling the movie in his giant Wave catalog. Anyone unfamiliar with Wave Productions, these videos were shot by Gary Woodson, Featuring women in distress, getting tied up, getting cannibalized, sinking in quicksand. It was a real strange collection of stories of girls in trouble. Now, the Eldridge was shot. 
I really didn't remember what happened, but after reading a making of article I wrote back in Draculina, it appears I was asked to come back to run camera on the Eldridge, not to play the lead as I had done before. In fact, I think all the actors were replaced. Not sure if I sucked that bad or was kicked out of the part or I chose to drop out of the part or maybe it was just because I bought a commercial Super VHS camera. I, I don't remember. But I did have other things going on and I did not return to Buffalo. And the movie graduated from being shot on video to being shot on film. Although, once again, I don't know if the movie was ever completed or ever released. David approached me again, not too much later, and asked if I wanted to shoot his next epic, Metal Noir. I drove to Buffalo, New York, and stayed there for a week, which I can say was a pretty good time since I didn't have to worry about anything but running the camera, and I feel I got pretty creative with it. Metal Noir is unlike any movie you've ever seen. My biggest complaint was that it had too much padding, which is ironic that I complain about that because I'm sure it was my fault that it did. Most of the distributors back there wanted a movie to run at least 85 minutes long before they would even consider it, so we shot a lot of long walking scenes. The long dialogue scenes I blame on David. His scripts tended to get pretty verbal. I edited the movie, and from there, I do not remember what happened as I was beginning work on my own movie, Gorgasm. Listening to the DVD commentary on Metal Nora, lead actor Charles Pinion stated that I had asked him to consider playing the lead in Gorgasm, and in turn he tried to talk me into letting him shoot Gorgasm in New York. I forgot all about that. But there was no way I was going to let someone else shoot my baby, but I wonder how the movie may have changed if Charles had played the lead or if he had shot it. I'm sure in any scenario it would have taken a different path. Charles was a good actor, and he really is the highlight of Metal Noir. Now, none of this has anything to do with Tony, except that Metal Noir was the movie that launched SOVHorror.com after he accidentally found a dupe of it in a box of VHS tapes. But Tony will tell you more about that in a minute. Before we jump into the interview, let me plug a couple websites. First, there's Draculina.com, where you can find back issues of Draculina, Scream Queens Illustrated, Oriental Cinema, She, Pinup, and more, including my movies Gorgasm, Gorotica, and Gore Horror on DVD. Podcast listeners can use the coupon POD20, that's P-O-D-2-0, and get 20% off your order. Also, visit my new website at HorribleHue.com for links to all the Horrible Hue's Coffin Reviews episodes, where Horrible Hue reviews movies like She Kills, Slaughter Drive, Girls with Balls, Her Name Was Krista, Morbid Stories, Cannibal Hookers, Tennessee Gothic, and the latest double feature episode, Zombarella's House of Horrors, and Metal Noir. Also get the Horrible Hue t-shirt or a free Horrible Hue sticker. Just go to HorribleHue.com and find out how. Now, the following interview was done on video, with some of the answers being used on the latest Horrible Hue's Coffin Reviews. So, if you would like to see this, please check out the latest episode on the Draculina YouTube channel. Without further ado... I bring you the interview with the ultimate shot-on-video officiato, Tony Masiello. Hi, my name is Tony Masiello, and I uh, run SOVHorror.com. It's a website that's dedicated to preserving the history of shot-on-video horror films. And we also have a small DVD label called SOV Horror that is dedicated to preserving shot-on-video horror films, as well as cult horror titles. 
Were you born in California? I was born in San Diego, California. I currently still live here, so born and raised, been here my entire life. Were your parents or any of your family in the movie business? None of my family is actually involved in the movie business. I'm the only one. And I'm sure uh, they're probably embarrassed of what I do anyway, so... I read that when you were a kid, you had your mom drive you around to video stores so you could find horror movies that weren't in the mainstream. So when I was a kid and I first discovered this magical thing called the video rental store, I mean, this was like a game changer as a kid. Back then, you know, it wasn't very easy to see movies. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have anything like that. So literally the only way we'd watch horror movies is, was either on television, which, you know, I didn't have cable growing up. We were very poor. So uh, we had the video store, you know, and we'd go to the video, video rental store and rent all these great horror films. And slowly, I started renting pretty much every horror film at the local video store. I still remember it's called Video Country. And so, uh, you know, one membership became two memberships. And then that became three memberships and four memberships. And I'd literally have my mom drive me all around San Diego to just about every freaking video rental store there is to rent different gory and sexy horror films. Because, you know, that's what I was into as a young kid. So... My, my poor mother, you know, she, she sat in that car quite a, quite, quite a long time, many of those trips. There was never any concern over what you were watching. There's usually a lot of violence, sex, and nudity and zero-budget movies for a kid. So, my mom was always very supportive of who I was as a child. Uh, early on in life, I had an attraction to monster films, uh, particularly the universal horror movies was kind of my introduction to horror. And, um, you know, we'd watch them on TV. They'd play like Frankenstein rerun and stuff like that on television. And uh, mom, mom was pretty cool about it. I mean, in the early days, some of the like kind of slasher stuff, you know, when the nudity scenes would come up and stuff, she'd ask me to close my eyes. But as she saw that, I took a bigger interest in the genre. And I actually took up the interest of writing as well. As a young kid, I was writing horror stories and stuff. Mom started to realize that, hey, this is what my son is really into. And mom was extremely supportive. I remember, I think it was like second grade. I got in trouble for writing this horror story, it, pretty much a fake slasher, you know. I think it was inspired by the Friday the 13th movies. And I wrote this fake slasher story, and my teachers obviously did not appreciate my uh, writings about, you know, people being murdered and disemboweled and stuff. And I remember this, this is such an amazing thing. Um, I remember being called to the principal's office, and they were literally telling my mom, your son is going to be a serial killer. We are really worried about your son. He's writing these crazy stories. We think he's going to become a serial killer. And my mom stood up and she said, Fuck you. My son is creative. My son loves horror. He, he loves this stuff and he's not hurting anyone. And it's just a hobby. And he's creative. He likes to write. And uh, so my mom is always 150% supportive of me. Even though she does not like my movies at all, she pretty much refuses to watch my movies that I make. But uh, yes, my mom was very support supportive of, of my choice. Did anyone in your family share your passion for no-budget movies? Uh, pretty much no one in my house liked no-budget movies. Um, I did have a brother growing up, and uh, he, he, you know, he was more into Star Wars and stuff like that, Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, and uh, I was more into Jason and Freddy and Chucky, you know. <laughs> so how did you move into the movie business and become a visual effects artist? 
I, I've, I pretty much have two passions in my life. My other passion, other than uh, horror films, is music. I'm a big music fan, uh, musician myself. I play many instruments. And uh, so after high school, I, I focused more on music. I mean, I, I was making short films and stuff like that, but they all really sucked and they weren't very good. And I was a better musician than I was a filmmaker. And so did that for quite a while, and then one day mom pretty much said, hey, you got to do something with your life. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sitting at home, I, I think this was my early 20s, and not really any kind of game plan. I was working at a video store at the time, which I loved, you know, to me that was my dream job. And uh, mom really pushed me to go to school. She said, you need to go to school, you know, and she knew I had a love for movies. And she said, well, why don't you, why don't you pursue a career in, in movies? And so I attended a, a visual arts college, um, Platt College. Um, the education was terrible. It was a horrible education. It, it put me in debt a, ton, a lot of money. I finally just paid it off after, you know, 15, 20 years of paying off student loans. Um, but yeah, I, I went to school. I got my degree in uh, graphic design and uh, digital video production and uh, set out to try to find a job, which wasn't very easy. Uh, especially considering living in San Diego, we are very close proximity to L.A., so all the film jobs are in L.A., um, whereas San Diego there really wasn't much. And, but there was one company in San Diego, it's called Legend Films, and uh, their main thing is they used to colorize old black and white movies, so uh, stuff like Reefer Madness, Plan 9 from Outer Space, Bride of the Monster, some really cool flicks. And so they would colorize these movies, and uh, they eventually got into the 3D business. So, um, you know, I didn't know shit about 3D. I was, I was into, I was already into visual effects. I was doing uh, my own comping and stuff, uh, compositing, and, you know, was always into practical kind of ways of filmmaking, as well as impractical with the computer. And, um, so, you know, I, I scored a job at, at Legend 3D, doing 3D conversion, which eventually led to, you know, doing comping, so doing actual visual effects, relaying visual effects into a 3D space. So that's kind of how I got into visual effects. And so I, I used to laugh, though, you know, I was working on these big Hollywood films, you know, like the Transformers movies, uh, you know, the Shrek movies, a whole bunch of stuff like that. You know, and that, that paid the bills, but then on the side, I'm doing work for people like Todd Sheets, Chris Seaver, Tim Ritter, Brett Kelly, you know, all these other low-budget, no-budget guys, because that's where my heart really was. You have a really impressive list of movies you've been involved with. Can you explain the exact duties of a visual effects artist? So, most of the larger budget films that I worked on uh, w was doing 3D. So, what we would do is... Uh, pretty much, pretty much what happens is when Hollywood has a bomb on their hands, they'd go, hey, you know, if we turn this movie into 3D, we can make a few extra dollars. And this was really big in the early 2000s. And, uh, you know, so, so the company I worked for, Legend 3D, we would get these 2D movies shot in 2D, never intended for 3D originally, and we would actually put them into 3D. And part of the 3D process would actually destroy the footage, because what you're actually doing is you're pulling an image off of another image and placing it in depth. So, inadvertently, you create artifacting, you create stuff like that. So, most of my job was painting out artifacting and, and making it so people don't notice that we were doing this fake 3D. Um, I did go through numerous positions, though, there, and eventually ended up uh, in the assets department, which was 
a lot more fun for me. Um, that was more when I did get to work a little bit more actually on putting visual effects into depth. So we would literally get the Hollywood shot, we'd get the shot from the studio, and all the different layers of the shot. And so we would find the proper way to put those in the proper depth. And the thing I love the most about that, I just want to point it out, is uh, you start to realize how fake those Hollywood movies are. I mean, literally, we would get updated plates of movies, like, oh crap, we gotta paint out this actor's wrinkles, and we gotta, you know, oh, his bald spot's showing, let's put some hair there. I mean, on the Superman movies, they didn't even use, they didn't even film a cape on the actor. The cape in, 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 I think it was Man of Steel we worked on, it was almost all completely fake. I mean, so it's kind of really interesting to see how fake those movies are. And like I said, it was, it was neat working on them. I mean, I think to a lot of other people, it was very impressive to them. But to me, it was never really impressive to me, other than the paychecks I got that were pretty nice. And, uh, you know, my heart was always in the low-budget stuff, though. And I still do low-budget stuff all the time to this day. I'm working on, a, on Tim Ritter's latest short right now, so. What was the first movie you worked on, and what were your thoughts when you first started out? Technically, the first movie I ever worked on was I worked on Hobgoblins 2 for Rick Sloan. I was a huge Rick Sloan fan. I still am. I, I love Rick Sloan. He's actually a very good friend of mine, and I'm so glad to call him a friend. And uh, the way I met Rick was I used to actually run the Rick Sloan fan, fan group on Yahoo Groups, if anyone's old enough and remembers the old Yahoo Groups. And I used to run the Rick Sloan fan group, and one day I get an email from Rick, and he pretty much says, hey, I, I'm thinking of making Hobgoblins 2, and uh, what do you think about that, fan? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mentioned to him, well, I do graphic design. At the time I was still in college, I was studying graphic design and video production, and I pretty much said, Rick, I will do anything to help out with Hobgoblins 2. I was a huge fan of the first one. And so I started off by designing props for the film. So I designed uh, some book covers, a cookie box, uh, some DVD covers that are seen in the movie, and then after that I became a production assistant. So I drive up to LA almost every day, like literally every day, to drive home that night, uh, sleep for about an hour, and drive back to go work on the movie again. And I think I worked on that movie probably about seven days. I actually have a small role in the film. I play a doctor who gets carjacked. I don't recommend anyone uh, check out my role in that movie. <laughs> it shows how horrible of an actor I am. But uh, technically, that was the first movie I ever worked on. Uh, the first credit I ever got, though, is kind of an interesting story. It was actually before that. And once again, because of the internet. <laughs> uh, I was part of the Fred Olin Ray uh, Retro Media Group, uh, another little forum online where, you know, Fred Olin Ray, cult filmmaker, used to, you know, talk with his fans and share information about the films. We could ask him questions and stuff like that. And he was making this movie called The Good, The Bad, and The Beautiful. And he needed an alternate title for Cable. And so he had this contest. And the contest was, if you can come up with a new title for the movie, he'll give you a credit in the film. So I came up with the title Bikini Roundup, and I actually won the contest. I couldn't believe it. And so I got my first movie credit ever, which I, I have I have it uh, printed up uh, in, my, in my collection here, because I'm still very proud that my first movie credit ever was an associate producer credit, and for anyone who knows the filmmaking in industry, you know, associate producer, the big joke is they call them ass prods. And on my credit is actually, there's a lady's butt on the screen of my credit, you know. So associate producer, Tony Masiello, you know, ass prod. So 
Uh, I'm still very proud, and, and ever since then, Fred Olin, Fred Olin Ray has actually given me credits in tons of his movies, just to fill up the credits, which I still find cute, you know, but a lot of people probably go, wow, you worked on this movie and that movie, and unfortunately, I didn't really work on any of those ones, the Fred Olin Ray ones, so if, if Bikini's in the title, Fred just was being nice. <laughs> what made you go back to shot on video movies? When I first... You know, when you first start watching horror films, you're watching the Jasons, you're watching the Freddies, you're watching all those types of movies, and you've seen them all. After a while, you start to see them all. Like I said, Mom would take me to all these video stores, and I'd pretty much rent every horror movie. And so you started looking for more obscure stuff. You started, you know, looking in the back of magazines like Fangoria. You know, I started picking up magazines like Alternative Cinema and Draculina, Femme Fatales, and seeing all these weird movies I'd never heard of that looked like they were filled with sex and violence. And so, you know, I started kind of checking out that stuff, and uh, that's inadvertently shot on video movies. That was the independent movie scene of the 80s and 90s. I mean, these people couldn't afford to shoot on film for the most part. Um, I would say I never, I never stopped liking shot on video movies. I've, I've loved them since the first time I can remember seeing them. I mean, I, I really don't remember my first. It was maybe either Blood Cult or Redneck Zombies would be my guess. One, one of the two probably. And, uh, both those movies I still love. I think they're both great movies. And, uh, you know, so I, I just, I always loved shot on video movies. And what happened was, is after I got into the film industry, and I was working within the industry, you know, I, I wanted to give back to the industry that inspired me in the first place. Because I would have never tried to get in the film industry if it wasn't for shot on video movies. I would have never thought I had a chance growing up being a poor kid, a single mother on welfare. I never would have thought I'd ever have a chance to work in the movie industry. But, you know, these shot on video movies showed me all you need is some heart. A little bit of money, some equipment, some heart, and you can do this. You know, and a lot of passion, a lot of passion. And so, you know, those were the movies that inspired me to get into the film industry. And so I decided to give back to the industry. And I've pretty much dedicated my life to promoting shout-on-video horror films. I've directed, you know, I've interviewed a ton of different directors and cast members from the films. Um... You know, I, I, I'm just a huge fan. I love the genre. I really feel... What I love about shot on video movies versus blockbuster movies is a blockbuster movie... And I mean, I worked in the industry, so I know this. You have thousands of people working on a movie to make something happen. Sometimes just thousands of people working on, you know, visual effects. So, like, literally painting a shot in a movie, you'll have thousands of people working on that shot. There are, you know, there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. And Hollywood is always, Hollywood's afraid to take chances. Hollywood always wants to be as safe as possible. You know, they make the same movies over and over again. Where with the shot on video movies, these guys are guys who just had visions, who wanted to tell stories. You know, people like Tim Ritter, people like Hugh Gallagher, you know, who really wanted to tell interesting, fun, creative stories. And so, you know... I, I just love Shot on Video because there's such a DIY kind of punk rock attitude, you know, of like, hey, I want to make a movie, I have a story to tell, and I'm going to do it. And I don't care if I don't have the money, I don't care if I don't have real actors, I don't care, you know, I'm not going to let anything stop me from making my film. And I mean, 
that was just so motivational to me as, as a kid growing up, and it still is to this day. And I love shot on video movies. I, I still watch them constantly. My poor wife has to sit and watch them. She's not a big fan, but uh, she's very supportive of my, of my habit. <laughs> Why did you start SOVHorror.com, and what were your expectations? So SOVHorror.com started as a way for me to share some of the video interviews I had been amassing. Um, I originally, had, had, it was probably about 2005 when I first kind of came up with the idea of, of making a documentary film about shot on video horror movies. And um, it, it took a few years before I started getting serious about that and actually uh, doing interviews and conducting interviews and uh, you know reaching out to directors and filmmakers and asking if they could even send me interviews to include in this project. And Everyone was so cool and so nice. There's a few people, you know, and I'm not going to share those names. But, uh, you know, the, for the most part, everyone was so cool and so nice. And long story short, I ended up with over 50 interviews. We're talking hundreds of hours of footage. And me just being one guy, it, it, it's a lot. It's a lot to do. And so I decided to scale back the documentary and do a web series called SOV The True Independence. And so SOV Horror originally was intended as just a way to get that content out to fans of, you know, other fans like myself of shot on video horror movies. And uh, since then, though, we've grown into a full-on DVD company. We also do reviews. We do all types of different videos. You know, pretty much anything SOV is, is what we're about at SOVHorror.com. Don't you find it a little odd that you're taking movies shot on the dead video medium and releasing them on the dying DVD medium? Okay, so some people, actually a lot of people probably think I'm batshit crazy for wanting to release these movies that most people don't give a flying shit about. I mean, most people don't, and especially onto a, a dying format like DVD. You know, a lot of people have asked me, well, why don't you put these on Blu-ray? Why don't you, you know, and do that? Or why don't you focus on streaming? Streaming is where it, it's at. And uh, me being a collector myself, I mean, I've always been a collector, um... I like having physical copies of movies. I, I'm not a huge fan of streaming myself. And so, I, I, you know, my company, I run it for people who are like me, people who want physical media. And, uh, you know, uh, like I said, some people have requested Blu-ray, but for anyone who knows anything about video, Blu-ray is a way higher format. Long story short, it's HD, it's 1920 by 1080, where most of your shot on video movies are, are, sh are only 72480. So you actually have to blow up a shot on video movie to release it on Blu-ray, which adds in artifacting and all types of crap like that. And my thought is, that's, that's crap, man. Like, SOV on Blu-ray is just a way for people to make money, in my opinion. It doesn't make the quality any better. The only pro to it is you can fit more on the disc. That's about it. But the movie's not going to look any better than it looks on a DVD. So, uh, I've been sticking to DVD. Uh, I've thought of doing some Blu-ray releases down the line for movies that we have multiple cuts of, because obviously we can fit a lot more on a Blu-ray disc. But to me, it's, it's all about just getting getting the content out to the fans who actually want the content. It's not about money. It's not about any of that. It's literally about something that looks really cool on my own shelf, you know? I have copies of all these, and I love I love adding these, these movies to my own personal collection as well, so. I think streaming is more of an infringement than bootleg videos were back in the day. Back in the day, you paid full price for a video or a cheaper price for a bootleg. 
Now, with streaming, you don't pay anything at all and just watch a poor copy sandwiched between McDonald's commercials. How do you feel about streaming, and do you think there's any money in it? Personally, I'm not a fan of streaming. Um, the thing about streaming is it limits your freedom of choice. When you sign up for a Netflix you sign up for, you know, these different streaming providers. I mean, all you got to do is look at the horror sections to even see what's available. 90% of it is newer stuff that's came out in the last five years. So you're not getting many classics. And if you are getting classics, it's the same stuff all of us horror fans already have in our collection. You know what I mean? I don't need to go and watch Creepshow on Netflix when I already have four copies of it on DVD and VHS at home, you know, or Blu-ray. I, I don't need to do that. Um, so, you know, I just feel most the, the most of the streaming providers aren't really offering enough quality content for me to really care. Personally, I don't, I don't pay for any streaming services myself. Um, I do have a Roku and I'll watch free stuff on some of the free channels sometimes. But for the most part, I prefer the physical media. Not to mention... I actually work for a film company now, and I, I make my money putting movies up on streaming services for people to make money. And, uh, you know, what happens is you compress these movies down for streaming to, to meet the vendor's specs. So Amazon, they want it, in, it delivered in a certain way. You deliver it to Amazon, and then Amazon goes, and they crush it down yet again. So that HD streaming file you're streaming is nowhere near an HD quality product. And, uh, you know, it's such a bait and switch because it's like, you know, someone pays to, to watch these movies, but you don't know how long that movie's going to be there. You know, sure, maybe it's available this week, but next week they pull it. And there's not a lot of good independent, you know, uh, releases. Most of these places, you know, like Netflix, they started off by by making money. Their first streaming stuff was like Chris Seaver movies and, and, and Tempe movies and stuff like that. And immediately once it started taking off, what did they do? They got rid of all the independent guys and they only stick to the Hollywood tripe. And I'm sorry, I'd rather have my own freedom of choice and collect my movies and watch what I want to watch, not have what I can watch be dictated by some streaming service that's in a sense holding you hostage for $6.99 a month. You seem very excited about finding the lost David R. Williams movie, Metal Noir, and went to painstakingly efforts to release it. Was it worth the effort, and has it lived up to your expectation and sales? Releasing Metal Noir, honestly, is probably one of the highlights of my life. Uh, honestly, I, I get kind of emotional just even thinking about it. Um, it was such an amazing opportunity um, that David R. Williams gave me to release that film and to trust me. Um... Long story short, the way the movie was discovered by me is uh, I, I'm friends with director Jay Wolfel. Some people may know him. He directed uh, Beyond Dreams Door. Uh, he one of the co-directors of the original Things, Demonicus, Demon Gladiator from Hell. He's done a lot of stuff. Great guy. And uh, Jay had given me a bunch of tapes. You know, he knew I was a big VHS fan, so he had some tapes, and he gave me a bunch of uh, tapes. And on one of those tapes, it was a dubbed tape. And there was two movies that caught my eye on it. There was uh, one, uh, Hugh Gallagher's first film called Dead Silence, which at the time was very hard to find. I mean, I, I didn't, I pretty much didn't even know of it, other than I'd heard of it, but I'd never seen a copy anywhere. And uh, then another movie called Metal Noir. And I didn't, I didn't, I watched Dead Silence uh, pretty soon after getting that tape. I was very excited because I'm a big Hugh Gallagher fan. He's actually one of my favorite shot on video movie directors. And uh, 
But, you know, so it took me a bit to actually, though, to get to Metal Noir. And when I finally watched Metal Noir, I said, Why have I never heard of this freaking movie? This movie is so freaking awesome. I love this movie. This is great. Why is no one, why does no one talk about this movie? And so I did some research and I found out, like, pretty much it was never really released. And so I said, wow, man, like, people need to see this movie. This is a really awesome movie. And I, I reached out to David R. Williams, um... And David was just so cool. David was... And David is so cool, man. Let me just say that. Like, honestly... And this company wouldn't exist if it wasn't for David R. Williams. And uh, him giving me the opportunity to do Metal Noir. Now, we had to re-edit Metal Noir pretty much from scratch. I mean, the master was, was ruined. The master was covered in mold. And so all we had to work with was my my VHS copy that I had, which was a dub of a dub of a dub, I believe. Very bad quality, lots of tracking issues, audio issues, all sorts of uh, bad issues. Uh, you know, for us people, used to watch bootleg videos, though it wasn't that bad. But most people today would not want to deal with that quality. So I had that tape, and then I had a work print that I got from actor Charles Pinion. But the work print was digitized. And he had thrown away the original VHS tape, so there was some pixelization issues. So I literally had to go back and recut the movie shot for shot. It probably took at least six months, I believe, to do all that. And for anyone who's ever made a movie, when you work all day on something, it really, it starts to become part of you. Like, you really, you know, I get it's not my movie. I didn't make the movie. It's David's movie. It is David's movie. But I still really feel, I feel a deep emotional connection to Metal Noir. I, you know, I literally try to edit it shot for shot. And, you know, that was the movie we started our company on. And if it wasn't for David giving me that opportunity, there would be no SOV Horror DVD line. There really wouldn't. That's the only reason it exists. And uh, I, I'm just so thankful to David. And... Uh, it was totally worth it, you know. <laughs> it was it was totally worth it to, to do all that work and to work my butt off for it. I mean, have I made a lot of money off of it? No. <laughs> Did I have I even made back the hours I probably worked on it? No, but I didn't do it for the money. It's not about the money to me. It's truly about getting the art out there. And I think it's a great movie. I hope more people check it out. I really hope they do. You know, I think movies like Metal Noir, if they were shot on film. You know, these would be the movies everyone's like clamoring for Vinegar Syndrome or for Arrow to put out, you know, and these special slipcover Blu-rays that everyone seems to love these days. You know, these would be the new cult classics. But because they're shot on video, unfortunately, a lot of people kind of, you know, have that stigma of, oh, it's a shitty movie, it's shot on video. But I'm so, I, I, I'm so thankful that I got to release Metal Noir and it's been a dream come true and I can't thank David R. Williams enough for giving me that opportunity. I had hoped you'd cut the movie down. I did the original edit, but back in those days, we were told a movie ideally needed to be 85 minutes long for a label to pick it up. So there's a ton of padding in it. So I, I know, Hugh, that you know, uh, you've know you kind of expressed that uh, you, you think there was too much padding in Metal Noir and it should have been cut down. And I understand, like, I, I completely understand where you're coming from with that. But um, as a fan myself, and, and when I set out to do this project, my whole thing is preservation. So, you know, I could have easily recut the movie to try to make it, quote-unquote, a better movie. But I wanted people to experience what I experienced that first time I saw the movie. Um, 
I, I'll be honest, a lot of filmmakers are going back now and re-editing their movies for DVD releases and Blu-ray and stuff, which I think is fine. I think there's nothing wrong with with reworking on your own work. I mean, ultimately, it is your work, and I get the limitations of the time, especially with shot on video. You know, the technology wasn't there like it is today with non-linear editing, where it's it's very easy to do edits now. Where back in the day, you had to plan it completely right to get those tapes to, to, to sync properly when you're doing it and whatnot. But um, I truly believe in that, you know, making the original version available. And that's, you know, so that's what I tried to do. And uh, we did we did take a few liberties with Metal Noir. Not much. A few. And that was mainly due to some of the just original source footage was just gone. Like, so we had to use a few alternate takes for things but you know and it comes to that question of padding with sov movies you know i think it just goes with the territory i think i think some of us fans we actually like the padding you know i like the walking around the park scenes i like that stuff and i think if i went back there and changed that then i'm robbing the fans of that experience that i got to enjoy and so I truly believe, I think there's nothing wrong, like I said, with filmmakers going back and changing their work if they like, but I think they should always make that original version available for the old school fans. And your edit was great, Hugh. I, I personally, I, I thought your edit was really cool, so, <laughs> so I kept it. I know you accidentally found Melanor, but how do you select the other titles you release? Um, so I have one rule for my company, and my company, my rule is... I'm only going to put out stuff I like. Uh, I'll be quite honest. Uh, I'm not making money off of my company. I'm losing money on my company. Uh, I do this because I love it. I do this because I, I love these movies. And, you know, when you spend six months to a year working on a release, like, you're not going to do that if you don't like the movie. And if you are, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You know, I do it because I love them. Um, so most of the movies, I pick them out because... I really like them. I really like them, or a few of them I was involved with. So, you know, Zombrella's House of Horrors, that was my movie, so I put that out. You know, Purveyors of Blood, a friend made that movie. I, I also helped out with that film and acted in it in the early 2000s. was never released. So so I put that film out. And uh, But but my main rule of thumb is pretty much I need to like the movie. It, it, that's first and foremost, because if I'm going to dedicate that much time into a release, and we really do spend a lot of time, I mean, uh, on these releases, that it needs to be something that I really like and that I think people will like as well. What has been your best seller? My best seller? Um, so, I, technically, I guess Metal Noir would possibly be my best seller, and that's probably just because it's been out the longest. Uh, we recently put out the Chris Seaver Warlock line, which has done really well for us. Um, we're slowly starting to build up steam, which is great. Any titles you're trying to find, or do you plan on to continue on with more releases? Right now, I currently have 15 more releases, 15 plus more releases planned. Uh, literally about eight of them are almost done, and I will be finalizing about eight different releases this weekend. Now, we're not going to release them all at once. I'm going to kind of release them over an amount of time, but uh, I would love to do this forever. Um, unfortunately, I don't know if my pocketbook will allow me to do this forever. Like I said, I've, I've lost a lot of money on this, but I do it because I love it. And I do it because I really love these movies and I just want to share them with people. 
And these are the special edition DVDs I would want of these films. And so I try to really put a lot of time and effort into, you know, doing special features, cutting nice making of documentaries. You know, I try to make my company the criterion of shot on video movies. I try to treat these movies with respect because I feel most companies really don't treat these releases with respect. So, but long story short, yes, I, I, I we have... 15 plus more movies coming out. I'm very excited. A lot of cool titles I haven't announced yet that I'm really excited to announce and I'm really excited to share with people. And yes, I'm definitely, I'm, there, I have my, my dream list. I have a lot of movies that I'm still currently trying to acquire the rights to that I'd love to put out. Um, you know, so fingers crossed some of those happen. You have some interesting credits in there, IMBD. You did Wardrobe on Bikini Chain Gang and Bikini Roundup. Please tell me you had to take the women to find them bikinis. The bikini movie credits, uh, I mentioned earlier, but those were all fake movie credits that Fred and Ray gave me uh, after he gave me that Associates Producers credit in his movie Bikini Roundup for coming up with a title. Pretty much after that, I became one of his names he inserts in his credits. So unfortunately, I did not bikini wrangle on Bikini Cave Girl or any of those movies. I wished I would have. And if Fred gave me the call and said, Hey, Tony, I want you to come down and, and wrangle some bikinis. I'm pretty sure I could do that. But my wife would probably have to supervise because I don't know if she'd appreciate that. You direct a lot of shorts. Have you ever shot a feature-length movie? So I've attempted to shoot a, a few features over the years. Uh, I'll throw a few titles at you. Uh, Showing Psycho Sorority Sluts in the Succubus Sleepover a Massacre. That was to be my debut feature, which uh, was incomplete. Uh, never got finished. Another movie uh, called The Rot that I started shooting never got finished. Um, the problem with making no-budget movies and work only, you know, is, is I work with my friends. Like, I'm not hiring real real actors or real crew members like literally these are my friends and I making these movies and uh, you know it's very hard to keep people in, involved you know people have lives you know we're all old we have kids you know I don't have kids but a lot of my friends have kids and you know families and so it's hard to keep someone coming back week after weekend to shoot you know and uh, especially you know when a movie can take gosh I mean if you only shoot weekends and you're a perfectionist like I am, it could take like a year to shoot a film. Um, I am actually, I am about to start shooting, hopefully this will be my first feature film. It's a movie called Gorlesque. It's going to be a little different. It's not your normal narrative type feature. And I chose this particular subject on purpose because it seems like the type of movie that I can make with just a couple people involved and not worry too much if people bail on the project or whatnot, that things can be rewritten to make the project work. So, um, and the concept for that is pretty much is it's a, it's a mix of a burlesque show and, and gore. So it's, 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 uh, it's, it's very different. It's kind of a very different thing and I hope people will dig it, I, you know, but I still plan on making more short films and working on horror anthologies and stuff like that because it's just, that, that's a lot more easier for me to do with uh, my current cast and crew situation, so. The movies that were started but that were never finished were Showering Psycho Sorority Sluts and the Succubus Sleepover Massacre. Uh, there's The Rot. There was one called Teenage Nerds Battle the She-Demons. Um, you can tell I like my really long titles. Uh, the Cannibal Vampire Cargo Hookers from Outer Space, 
there was a plan for a feature of that at one point, which you know, which fell apart, unfortunately. So there's been, you know, the thing is, is when you when you get into filmmaking, you know, a lot of the times there's lots of things that are outside your capabilities. So, not outside your capabilities, but outside of my power, you know. I mean, when you're working with people, you know, they can't always show up weekend two. They can't always show up weekend three. And so, unfortunately, sometimes projects get scraped. And a lot of that type of stuff ended up in the Zombarella movie. I mean, most of those commercial breaks and fake trailers that are in there are actually from incomplete projects. And I just retooled them for the Zombarella film. How did Zombarella come about? The way Zombarella's House of Horrors came about was I had, uh, we had released Metal Noir on DVD, and so now I had a DVD label, and I'd been doing short films for a while, and I contributed many short films to many anthologies. You know, we had a short film, The Tape, was in the movie High 8, uh, Love Me in Pieces was in Todd Sheets' uh, anthology Sleepless Nights. We had a Chester and Morty's Grim Return, was in Frames of Fear, uh, Cannibal Vampire Call Girl Hookers from Outer Space was in Grindsploitation. So we had shorts kind of all over the place. And uh, I just wanted to put together a, a, a compilation of my work, mainly for my cast and crew and for people who had worked on it. And uh, so I s slowly started kind of like putting this stuff together and I was trying to find a way, like I had a lot of in unfinished projects and stuff like that and I was trying to find a way, like how can I get all this together and make it into a feature? And so I came up with this idea of what if I did this like fake host show similar to one of my favorite shows ever, USA Up All Night, which was another reason I got into B-movies was that show right there and uh, staying up and watching that late at night as a kid warped my little brain. <laughs> and uh, so I was really inspired by that and I was like, well, what if I made a movie that kind of had a host and there was commercial breaks and all that. I was also influenced by uh, Chris LaMartina's WNUF Halloween special, which kind of had a similar thing. It was this uh, fake Halloween special that had all these fake commercial breaks that I thought was really clever. So I got all this old footage that had been sh shot over the last 20 years, you know, little projects like Night of Living Bombs and Backwoods Snuff Party Massacre and things like that and retooled those to be like mini trailers or commercials. You know, the drug PSA commercials are from abandoned projects that never got finished um you know so everything kind of came from other other things and was kind of retooled the only new stuff we actually shot for the zombarella movie was we shot all the 1-800 sex ads because you know you had to have those those were like a staple of usa up all night was those 1-800 sex ads and uh so those were new the host segments were new um and then all the Tim Ritter stuff obviously was new as well. So what happened too, the way Tim got involved was originally it was, it was just going to be my work. And I tried to license my first short that was distributed called The Tape, which was in the movie High 8. And long story short, the producers were, there was no way in hell they were going to license that to me for use. So they wouldn't even consider it. And so... Um, I was a short short, <laughs> and I, you know, I, I wasn't sure if I had uh, the team to really shoot something new at the time, and so, um, you know, me and Tim were buddies, and I'd work with Tim, and, uh, you know, doing effects and various other things for Tim and his movies, and so, uh, 
you know, I think I just asked Tim and Tim was on board. He's like, yeah, I'd love to do a short for it. And, you know, once he got the short in, he's like, hey, I can do some commercials too. So, uh, so that's how me and Tim kind of teamed up for the movie. And, uh, I mean, it was an honor. It was such an honor to, to, to co-direct a movie with Tim Ritter. I mean, I grew up renting Truth or Dare and just thinking it was the coolest movie ever, you know. And so to actually get to work with Tim Ritter was just amazing. And, and, and I can't thank him enough. And, uh, yeah, so Zombarella, long story short, is the last 20 years of my filmmaking output. I never see Zombarella's real name anywhere in the credits. Is there a reason for that? The, the young lady who plays Zombarella is actually a good friend of mine. Uh, we, we go way back. We've known each other for well over a decade uh, through various bands and musical projects we used to do. And she just pre she prefers not, not to be known by her real name. She, she prefers to, to go by her stage name when she's uh, involved in our stuff. I probably don't blame her. <laughs> I would use a stage name if I could. <laughs> what were her thoughts on the part and the finished product? As for how Zombarella feels about the final movie, I'll be honest, I, I don't know if I could say that for her. You'd have to honestly talk to her about that. Um, I, I, I know we had a lot of fun making it, but I also know we had a lot of problems making it as well. It wasn't easy making the movie. We actually had to redo the host segments a couple different times for various reasons and stuff. So, I mean, she worked really hard. She was a really hard worker, and I can't thank her enough for what she did do to help complete the movie. But really, I, I can't speak for her. You'd actually have to speak, speak to her. I'm sure she'd probably, uh, you know, maybe say some nice things, maybe say some bad things. Who knows? <laughs> I remember seeing a post on Facebook. Am I remembering wrong, or did you marry Zombarella? Okay, so I I am not married to Zombarella. Like I said, Zombarella is just a good friend of mine. We've been friends for years. Uh, Zombarella isn't even her name. And uh, Z the Zombarella character, actually, I came up with in high school. Uh, at the time, I, was gonna, I wanted to start this... Uh, public domain horror host show and so I came up with the name Zombarella and I did this animation for it using the music from Man of the Hands of Fate back in back in my early college days and uh, so yeah the Zombarella idea actually came from a really long time ago but no I'm not married to Zombarella I have a beautiful wife uh, she may be in the Zombarella movie I'm not gonna say if she is or is not if you look close, you might you, you might figure something out, but I, I'm not I'm not gonna say that. My wife probably would rather not be known for working on my movies. Zombarella call you a worm? Zombarella's called me a lot of things. I don't think she's ever called me a worm though. Uh, she's probably called me an asshole, a jerk. She's probably uh, you know, she's called me a friend, obviously. But no, Zombarella has, has yet to call me a worm. But she's welcome to call me one if she likes. She totally can. That's fine by me. Is there any chance that cannibal vampire call girl hookers from outer space will ever become an actual movie? So we've done three cannibal vampire call girl hookers from outer space uh, trailers. And I did a while back, I actually cut together... Actually, it's funny. The first, So the first real Zombarella project with the actress who plays Zombarella was she was hosting this thing, I, I called it Ghoul Girls, and it was her hosting these clips, pretty much long sequences from the Cannibal Vampire Call Girl Hookers from Outer Space trilogy. And uh, for the most part, those were always intended as trailers only, so we mainly just shot the gore scenes with some you know sex and sexy type scenes in there as well. 
as well as you know a few power lines here and there um, but you know part three in particular we shot probably fuck I don't know like 10 hours of footage for part three for a five minute trailer <laughs> you know there, there's so much gore and nudity in that part three specifically I mean I always laugh and joke about it that we should have just made a feature that we worked as hard to make a feature we just didn't shoot any dialogue um, I'd love to do a, a feature length version uh, at one point we were going to make a feature length version uh, but unfortunately that kind of fell apart and uh I'm always looking for cast and crew, so I'm in San Diego, California. Please, anyone, people want to work with me, I would love to make a Cannibal Vampire Call Girl Hookers from Outer Space feature, so please look me up. Let's make this movie, guys. I want to do it, but I need your help. I can't do it alone, so, so please, yes. <laughs> what do you have next on the horizon? Well, up next for uh, me is I'm still just uh, working mainly on the DVD label. Um, so, like I said, we have a lot of releases coming uh, out in the next year or so, about at least 15 that we have currently licensed that we'll be releasing. Uh, the plan is also is to continue the SOV, the True Independence web series. So I, I only put those up maybe once every couple months when I have time to edit one I do. But I'm hoping to get a lot more of that footage out there because I have some great interviews with SOV alumni who really don't talk about their work publicly very often. So I'd really love to get more of that content out there. Uh, I'm, I'm about to finish my next movie, which is a direct sequel to Zombarella's House of Horrors. It's called Natasha Knighty's Boudoir of Blood, and we're almost done with that. And uh, this is actually the first time I've really spoken publicly about it, so... Uh, there's your scoop there, Hugh. And, uh, yeah, so I'm really excited about that. Um, it is a new host. It's going to be a little different. Not as many commercial breaks. Only a couple commercial breaks this time around. But uh, we have some great films uh, from uh, Ron Ford and Jeff Kirkendall, as well as a short film from myself as well in there. Uh, one of my early short films, Typeface, which you might recall the trailer for that in the Zombarella film itself. So, and then I also have the Gorelesque project. I'm hoping to start shooting that soon. The virus thing has kind of messed that up. Obviously, for anyone right now, shooting is really difficult, and I don't want to risk anything. Um, but, yeah, I'm just hoping to keep doing what I'm doing. I mean, I, I love doing this, and I, I just hope, you know, I hope people start finding out about what we're doing and that I can maybe at least make my investment back eventually so I can keep doing this for years to come because I love these movies. These were the movies that inspired me to get into the industry. And I see every day, I see every day online, they inspire new kids every day. I love when I see a new kid pick up a video camera and record something. And, you know, there's something, it's the passion. It's the passion, it's the drive. I mean, and it, it's so beautiful to me. It, it, SOV, I always like to say SOV is love. You know, SOV is love. You can't make SOV without love. I mean, you can if, if you're all about money, but true SOV people do it for the love of the genre, for the love of the medium, you know, and I hope to continue and help spread that love until I'm not here anymore. So I love SOV and I really, I just, I really hope that, you know, that we can keep this going for many more years to come. With technology, I think no-budget movies today look way better than the stuff shot on video back in the 80s and 90s. How do you feel about movies then and now? Video then versus video now. 
obviously the playing field has been leveled. You know, back in the day, it wasn't easy to make a movie. Even a shot on video movie, you needed the equipment. You needed, you know, the facilities to edit or the equipment to edit. You needed actors. You needed, you know, special effects. You needed all this stuff. We're now with cell phones and the internet and all the new programs and even apps that people have anyone can pretty much make a movie. So what happens is you start, as you see with the horror market now, I mean, you look back in the day, like in the 90s, like an average year, what, 30, 40 horror movies come out? Nowadays, you look at the average month, a thousand horror movies now come out. So there's a lot more shit to dig through, honestly. There's a lot more garbage to dig through to really find the gems. Um, but I do think it's great that people can make movies. I really do think that people can follow their dreams and, you know, they don't need money. All they need is the heart and the passion to do so. And there are some really great filmmakers out there, some really great young filmmakers out there who are utilizing this technology great. But me personally, I still love the aesthetic of old SOV. I still shoot all my stuff 4.3, full screen aspect ratio, 7.20. I do not shoot HD. I'm not a big fan of HD. And, uh, you know, maybe someday I'll move up to HD, <laughs> but, you know, even my, uh, my, my next movie I'm working on right now is all SD 4.3, you know, so, uh, I, I personally love the aesthetic of, of video and, uh, don't see a point in really moving forward at this point, at least for what I, what I like to do. So any closing thoughts? I just want to say thank you so much, Hugh, for having, for, you know, giving me this opportunity to talk about our films and talk about what we're doing at SOVHorror.com. Um, ultimately, I do this because I love these movies and I just really want people to see them. And I hope, you know, I hope your audience checks out these films and not only the films we put out, but also the other great companies, you know, like Sub Rosa Studios, you know, Alternative Cinema, I mean, Tempe Video. There's so many great companies out there and people really should go out there. Check out some, if you're, if you're not really used to shot on video movies, you know, give it a shot. There's some good, there's some good flicks out there. And I think you'd be pleasantly surprised if you got over the video aesthetic and the video look that there's a lot of really cool movies waiting to be discovered. And, you know, they're just so fun. You know, it's all about love. SOV is love to me. And I will always say that. And I just want to thank you, Hugh, for giving me the opportunity to come on here and talk, as well as to cover our films. I mean, it's, it's, it's a complete honor. And, you know, I'm just going to go and say it, Hugh, you've always one of my favorite SOV filmmakers, and I'm not just kissing your ass. I mean, since the first day I saw Gorotica, I was like, this is freaking awesome. And I've been a huge fan ever since. And my final word on all of this is Hugh Gallagher. I want you to make another movie. I want to see another movie by Hugh Gallagher. And I will help produce it. I'll do whatever I can to help that movie happen, Hugh. I would love to see that happen. And thank you so much. I hope, uh, I hope people enjoy what we're doing. I have a ton of movie ideas I would like to get made. So you better watch what you say, Tony. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of Draculina's B-Movie Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I would like to urge everyone listening to take time to go to YouTube and subscribe to the Draculina YouTube channel, where you can see all the horrible Hughes coffin reviews. And I am working on some more Draculina content that I really don't think you'll want to miss. Trying to build an audience doesn't cost you anything, so just go to YouTube and subscribe. I appreciate it. Also, you can watch Horrible Hugh on Avail TV. You can get the channel for free on your Roku, Apple TV, or Amazon Fire. Okay, I'm done plugging stuff.
be sure to subscribe to this podcast. You won't want to miss an episode. And go to Draculina.com and HorribleHue.com. So until next time, don't let life suck the life out of you.